Hello and welcome to Living Being. My name is Chris Park. I'm Verity Sharp. And I'm Patrick Randall. today's episode, we're talking to Dr. Sarah Robb, who's a cosmetic scientist. But before that, how's everyone's week been? Good. Do you know, I had my first experience of chewing propolis. So I'd never actually done that before. Because you always say, Patrick, you actually forget to bring it back from the hive quite often, don't you? Yeah. But I, I put it in my mouth and chewed. And I don't know if this was just psychosomatic, but I got a tingling, like a kind of release of, um, what is that Endorphins. Thing? Endorphins. Is, it, is, oh. that, is that normal? And, and then my tongue burned. <laughs> it can be quite <laughs> spicy, can't it? It's, yeah, it is spicy stuff. And then and your teeth were yellow as well. My teeth were yellow. So what is propolis? Oh, for you, people who don't know listening uh, to this, yeah. come on, Chris, what's propolis? Propolis, it's uh, bees collect it from the gums and resins of trees and they bring it into the hive and mix it with enzymes and it's, it becomes this very mysterious, magical substance that it is the immune system of the hive and, and we eat it because it's, it's good for us. You know, it's full of, full of medicines and it's antifungal, antibacterial, antimicrobial, uh, it's, it's uh, anti-mould, it's, it's mildly anaesthetic. It has so many excellent health-giving properties mm. and, of course, it's... Uh, folk medicine has used it for for toothache for a long, long, long time. Maybe it was that. Maybe it was that that sort yeah. of sense of um, numbness. Actually, now you can't mention. Yeah, so much a hotness. Yeah. It was a numbness that I was feeling on my tongue. Like an anaesthetic. Is it best taken like Verity took it, eating it, or would you put it in a drink? Or well, it doesn't. It doesn't dissolve in water very well. You can make it into a tincture, and you have to kind of soften it in water for quite a while before you put it into an alcohol. And uh, the I think most beekeepers just chew it like a like a chewing gum. Yeah. Don't chew it on your front teeth because you end up looking like you smoke eighty a day. You know, your front teeth go, you go yellow and orange, and, and you know. Uh, uh, so chew it on your back teeth. And so, so what, what I do, and if if ever I have a toothache, I just wedge some in the cavity, and magically disappears. <laughs> it magically disappears, and uh, you know, and if it stay, if it lingers on, I just stick a bit more in, and, and then it goes eventually. Oh wow! Well, so I'm going to send some to my mum, who's got big toothache at the moment. Yeah, she has. Yeah. Pro- I mean, lock, there, there, lockdown situation with no dentist there around. Are, we could, you know, start that's handing right. it out all over the place. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I have been posting people so much, actually. And, but uh, you know, in exchange for like a packet of bee-friendly seeds or something. But uh, it's uh, there is like two percent of the world's population are allergic, so you do need to Ooh. be careful. Okay. And what oh, do the bees uh, use it for? They glue everything up, don't they? And and, and if a, a mouse can invade a beehive. And they can kill the mouse, but they're not strong enough to to drag it out. So they'll completely coat it in propolis, and it will stop it decaying. So it's it's their way of keeping the inside of a hive uh, uh, clinically clean. And you think that the brood and the eggs are open to the air inside a beehive. So propolis and and, and royal jelly, of course, and honey and wax, all these things are so uh, they're so cleverly orchestrated by the bees to to create this environment, which is. Um, which is just so healthy and clean. Yeah. yeah. They'll gum up any any little hole, any any, any draft, any, any little hole. Propolis. This is my intellect. Uh, this is my intellectual bit. Yeah. Okay. Before the city. Yeah. Greek. It's Greek words. Propolis. Before which the is city. Before the city. Yeah. So it's like a city defence. It's just their, their defence mechanism for. 
Yes, yeah. that's right. And, and sometimes bees will draw a propolis curtain over the, the entrance of the hive if it's not disturbed too much. And then every single bee that's sort of entering the, the temple, if you like, will be brushed and cleansed and consecrated on the way in <laughs> by the propolis. So, it's great stuff. It's great uh, I guess no wonder then that it's, it comes up, doesn't it, in this conversation with Sarah Rob, because uh, as a cosmetic scientist and using all these things to great advantage. But um, we should probably get on with, the, with with this interview. It's quite long, isn't it? But but I just have hogged the limelight. Any bee moments from you two this week? Well, yeah, uh, sad, sad bee moments, I suppose. You know, I, I guess maybe the farmer's got wind of me extolling the virtues of thistles for bees or something, and, and he's got a bit wary, but they just it's been so dry and they've just cut everything. So we're in a kind mm. of... On a lovely organic farmland, but it's like a desert at the moment. Oh. <laughs> All the fields are cut, you know, to the, and, and, and every single thistle, even the musk thistles, you know, have been cut and things like that. But, but the, the white clover is pushing up through underneath, so this kind of new wave of forage is coming. Mm. But it just feels a bit like, well, they're having to fly a long way at the moment to, to get what they need. You just re- reminded me that recently there was some, a lot of brambles that we had, mm. the, uh, just neighbouring our, our neighbour's garden. And uh, it's all been cut down. And of course, you know, no. there's nothing, there's nothing, you know, potentially mm. wrong with people tidying, tidying things up. But it's just when the flowers just are just emerging. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And you think that's half, that's half the forage for, you know, yeah. for the bees gone. Oh. But uh, no, my, my actual bee moment uh, was noticing the bumblebees uh, and how they're out before everybody else for all the other bees and they're they're out later than all the other other bees it's incredible Mm -hmm. how long they are out uh foraging because they because they've got the sort of right into the evening right until the light goes yeah because they're up at breakfast because they've got their sort of woolly woolly bodies they uh i suppose they can keep warmer in the warmer yeah so they're out well before all all, you know Mm -hmm. all the other bees and they are gorgeous that that um chat that we have with um, bridget strawbridge you know she kind of just she just makes you fall in love with them but just to add to the plant list if anybody hasn't listened to that that's that's there for you it's just bridget strawbridge looking at plants and how they um kind of appeal to different types of bees and especially bumblebees um but napita that's what they're on right outside our door which is cat mint and they just just the best thing ever yeah. They go mad for it, don't they? They do. OK, well, look, we should listen to this um, interview with Dr. Sarah Robb, who's somebody that you've come across, haven't you, Chris? Yes, I know Sarah. She, uh, generally from the National Honey Show, I think I first met her. And she's well known in the beekeeping world. Uh, she gives workshops and lectures and teaches people how to make soap and cosmetics using bee products, honey, wax, propolis and, and other things. She's uh, very friendly and a great person to know. Yes, that was great. <laughs> Let's hear it. Hello, Sarah. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Chris is here. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Chris. So, Sarah, how would you describe what it is you do? Ah, well, right now... Um... I guess I am um, a cosmetic scientist, a uh, cosmetic safety advisor, and um, I guess a scientist in general, I would consider myself. I'm not really sure. It's very difficult to put, put myself in a category, I think. But you started in neuroscience, is that right? I did. So um, I grew up in Iowa, 
And um, I think if you would have told me when I was 12 years old living in Iowa that someday I would live in London and teach beekeepers how to make cosmetics, I would have thought you were absolutely insane. Can I just stop you one second? Because there's a squeak somewhere. Is, that, is there a squeak in your room? Oh, or in... oh you know what that squeak was? What's I that? think that's, that squeak was my parrot. Ah, okay. <laughs> okay, so that was Boise the parrot, and he's in the other room, and Jasmine and Maggie are looking after him, trying to keep him from screaming, and so that was the squeak I think you heard him. There may be more squeaks later. Yeah, as long as you haven't taught him any swear words, I think we're okay. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, we try not to. Can you tell me about Iowa? I mean, I know the name, and I've heard of it, and I know it's in America, but I've got no idea... What would we like to be stood in Iowa right now? Oh, if you were stood in Iowa right now, Chris, you'd probably be in the middle of a Um, Uh cornfield. They produce a lot of uh, soybeans and corn. Uh Um, And I didn't grow up on a farm, but I lived um, in a town and was surrounded by farmland. It's very, very flat. Um, And in fact, um, you know, the Wizard of Oz, the tornadoes Uh and things, we had tornadoes. And when I was, um, I think, about 12 as well, our house was hit by a tornado, um, which is a different (laughs) story, but very interesting. Um, (laughs) So, yes, um, very windy. And beekeeping? And beekeeping. I didn't know any beekeepers at the time. I would imagine um, there are a lot of beekeepers in Iowa. Um, Because it's plain land, you probably would get different honey. Um, Additionally, because they grow a lot of soy and corn. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what other crops they would grow, but um, definitely beekeeping. But I wasn't aware at the time. Great. It has a lot of vowels, doesn't it, Iowa? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it's a Native American word. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. And um, so I grew up in a town called Fort Dodge and Uh um, pretty much didn't really think much about bees when I was growing up. I later learned that my great grandfather was a beekeeper. And I do remember that in the cupboard, we had a large jar that was always there of what was called Sioux Bee Honey. Now, this was probably clover honey. It was made in Iowa. So that maybe is one of the main crops in Iowa. Um, It was a very sweet, runny honey, quite pale. Um, And so it was a favorite to put on peanut butter sandwiches, peanut butter and honey. Um, But probably that's really what I thought about uh, my, my contact with beekeeping. That, and I remember there was a piece of beeswax in my mother's sewing box. And I remember asking her what that was because it had Mm. quite a strong, peculiar smell. And she said, oh, this is beeswax and you use this to um, put on your thread so it won't get tangled. And so those are my two memories of um, probably bee-related things in Iowa. (laughs) Wonderful, thank you. That's that's lovely to hear. Then the transition from there to to keeping bees, were you keeping bees in, in Iowa then? No, I'm not a beekeeper. I am completely a groupie. So I'm very lucky um, to be accepted by the bee world. Um, In fact, I was really thrilled a few years ago when Chris asked me to join the Historic Beekeeping um, Society because as a non-beekeeper, I felt quite honored, really. Um, But uh, no, I kind of fell into the um, honey-related products, Um, And I'll tell you a little bit about that later, but I think first I should maybe tell you a bit more about my background and how I ended up kind of where I am now. 
And so I've had a very meandering path to where I am today. I went to Iowa State University um, and got my degree in sociology, went on to the University of South Dakota, and I got a master's degree in sociology. But I was quite interested in human behavior and um, the neuroscience of human behavior. Um, And so I thought, well, it would be quite interesting to do neuroscience. Um, And so I took um, a few classes at the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy and Science, which is one of the oldest uh, pharmacy schools in the U.S., and it's in Philadelphia, obviously. And so I spent some time at PCPS and studied basic science there. And after that, um, went on to Hershey Medical School, where I did my PhD. And my PhD was in um, oxidative stress and neurodegenerative diseases. And I was looking at um, diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's diseases, and things like that, and um, how cells die due to oxidative stress from free radical generation. Um, But while I was a PhD student, um, I was really interested in making soap. And I bought a book about soap making and read this book. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is so scary. I can't possibly do this. It's so dangerous, I could die. All right, it wasn't quite like that, but I was quite worried. Um, And I think American authors are quite worried about being sued, um, rightfully so. And so they do make it sound quite dangerous. Um, So even though I was working in a laboratory using radioactivity and chemicals, I was quite frightened to try to make soap. So I put the book aside, finished my degree. Um, I came over to the UK to do my postdoc. Um, I actually sailed over on the QE2 and then drove to Dundee, Scotland, which was a big mistake, but that's a different story, um, the driving part. Uh, And so I arrived in Dundee and did my postdoc there at Nine Wells Hospital um, and still had this interest in soap. Um, And I should say that while I was doing my PhD in America, um, I met an English scientist And so you can kind of tell where this is going to go. This is maybe my downfall or maybe my inspiration. I'm not really sure. Um, And so I met met Sandip and he was doing um, his postdoc in America while I was doing my PhD. Then I came here for my PhD. He came over. We did this back and forth dating for a while. And then we finally got married. Um, And so... We were both working at University College London. We got married and then we had a baby and that would be baby Jasmine. And when Jasmine was born, I thought I really want to stay home with Jasmine. Um, And I did go back to work part-time, but I was constantly thinking about what can I do to stay home with Jasmine? Now, I'm sure you can tell from my accent and we talked about Iowa, I'm American. Cookies are in my blood. I make really, really good cookies. Um, And I thought, well, I could make cookies. But anyone, and Chris, you can probably relate to this, and you, Patrick, as well, if you remember having babies around, you know they don't let you do what you want to do when you need to do it. And so no matter, Jasmine was a lovely baby. She's in the other room, might be able to hear me. I don't know. But I thought cookies are not going to work. And so I thought, what could I do? I'm still really interested in making soap. 
And so I bought the soap making book again, the same one I had when I was a PhD student, and I gave it a try. Now this was the traditional method of making soap where you would mix the things, ingre the ingredients together. You would have your lye at one, a certain temperature. You'd have your oils at a certain temperature. You needed thermometers. You'd mix it together carefully and then you'd let it cure. Well, I didn't have very good luck with the traditional method. Um, first thing I think that happened was I broke one of my thermometers. And so here I am with one thermometer putting it between the two. Um, and I was quite careful. I am a scientist. So I did follow the um, instructions meticulously. But it was difficult because I had this one thermometer. It probably made it more dangerous than it should have been because I was trying to move the thermometer between the two carefully. Um, and so finally, I just thought, oh, you know, people have been making soap for a really long time and they didn't have thermometers. So I'm just getting rid of the thermometer. And that was the first step towards uh, my soap making method. Um, and then I thought as a scientist, okay, I don't really want to wait until the soap has cured for four to eight weeks before I can use the soap. Um, for me very much, if I make a cake, I see the cake, I would like to have a slice now. I don't want to wait a month before I can eat my cake. And so I thought about ways of speeding up the process and kind of began developing that and was making soap that was nice and Jasmine was sitting in the kitchen in her bouncy chair. Everything was going well. Um, and a neighbor asked if we would watch their flat. Um, nice woman from Poland. And when she came back, she gave me this beautiful jar of Polish blossom honey. Now, most people would think, oh, that looks really delicious. I'm going to eat that honey or bake something. And I looked at it and I thought, um, I'm going to make honey soap. And so this was my first honey soap. Um, so mm -hmm. I made some soap, <clears throat> looked over at Jasmine, and I thought, you're looking a bit grubby today, Jasmine. I think you need a bath. Um, took her in, put her in the bathtub, and washed her with that honey soap. Um, now, it's probably not ethically okay to experiment on, on children, but if they're your <laughs> own children, I think it's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or or and, elderly parents as well, I think. Or fine. elderly, yeah, I didn't yeah. have an elderly parent to hand. Yeah. Um, but I have to say that I used that honey soap on Jasmine, and... It was amazing. Her skin felt like velvet. And I also like to always say that when Jasmine was a baby, she was a very scaly baby. Um, she had very, very dry skin, always needed to be moisturized. So baby lotion, baby oil. But as soon as I started using honey soap on Jasmine's skin, I never had to moisturize her again. And that is what sold me on honey in soap and cosmetics. Um, now, shortly after that, I contacted Francis Kapner at the National Honey Show and I said, I'm making these little soaps. I think I had one or two recipes and some beeswax lip balms. Could I come along to the National Honey Show? And he was so supportive of me. Um, he was just so supportive and helped me so much, arranged for me to have a small table at an educational rate. And I came along and I had baby Jasmine with me. Well, she was, she was probably three-ish by then. Um, and that's kind of uh, how I ended up going to the Honey Show for the first time. So, Were there many people at the Honey Show involved in 
in making soaps and um, there, there actually was a company um, that I don't think is around anymore. There was a company, it may have been Honeybee Cosmetics, or I, I don't remember the name of it, um, but they were there. But there were not that many people. There are certainly a lot more now. Um, but no, and and I remember, I, I remember being quite intimidated by the whole... Um, no, I don't want to say stuffiness, but, you know, it definitely was kind of an old boys club. And so here I am, this non-beekeeper selling these honey soaps with this funny looking family that, you know, um, <laughs> it, it was, I don't think they knew what to make of me at all. And, uh, you know, I think over time they have, they have accepted me completely, <clears throat> which I'm really pleased. But, um, yeah, I think at the beginning they just thought, who is this woman? Um, but it's gone well since then. So Exceedingly well, I would say. It's wonderful to hear you mention Francis. Uh, I had the, the exact same experience as a skep maker and skep beekeeper. I thought, oh, I could take these to the National Honey Show and got in touch with Francis and he was just so inclusive and said, yes, come along, you know, have, we, we can find you a little space somewhere. And it may have been the same, may have been the same year, I don't know, but it was uh, back then yeah. it was at St. George's College, wasn't it, in... in a, Okay. No, I was a bit before. I was a yeah. bit before. I was at Hendon. Yeah. Hendon, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he would just sort of um, trot around and making sure everyone was okay. What a great, what a great character. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I just, I'm so thankful to him because he led me, I think he, he started me down this path and it sounds like he, he encouraged you in the same way. And um, I'm so grateful to him for that and you know I think and in fact when when the workshops um, were going to start I remember that um, that Francis really wanted me to do the cosmetic workshops um, and the other beekeeper that helped me a lot was Peter Springall and he um, really went to bat for me and, and supported me because I think there were a number of beekeepers who were reluctant to have a cosmetic workshop because they were worried about um, the safety uh-huh. of it. And um, so I think those two beekeepers really ha- have really been um, influential to me. Great. And the National Honey Show is such a brilliant event to anybody listening that hasn't heard of it or, or has thought of going but hasn't. It, I mean, it's international for one thing. Lecturers come from all over the world and it's just full of inspiration and folks like yourself and experts on all different avenues of of the bee world and workshops and of course trade and uh, and a great quiz with bees for development uh, yep and and, 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 <laughs> what, and wonderful be, people i want to be on your team next year chris <laughs> That's I, right. I, now chris's team always wins um <laughs> or did you win last year always win <laughs> no. get close. yeah so some year i want to be it's true though that there's there's plenty of talks and workshops for, for people who aren't beekeepers and who just have an interest in bees, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. In fact, um, at my workshops, I very often get um, the partners of beekeepers, both male and female, that come along. Um, and I think that uh, that's one thing. And then seeing the exhibits and going to the talks, there are lots of things that um, that the non-beekeeper can attend and learn from. And it is really fascinating to see all the different jars of honey and um, yeah, it's just, it's very good, especially for children, yeah. I think. Yeah, it's very educational, isn't it? And a great venue as well at Sandown Park at the moment. 
So, Sarah, Sarah, it's excellent and really nourishing to hear you talk about your experiences with, with as soon as you added honey to a soap, that it just had this extra magic and and health-giving properties and you've kind of dedicated yourself to to cosmetics and uh, might you call it a kind of soft apitherapy if you like because in a way it is apitherapy if you look at the word salve and the word balm and Absolutely. cosmetics yeah cosmetics has a kind of sort of you know a sort of vain kind of a narcissistic sort of contemporary element doesn't it but actually if you look at the roots of cosmetics it's health and preservation of life uh, and all those good things and and honey has always uh, and the other related products always have that don't they and it, i'd love to hear you talk more about that yeah actually it's really interesting that you said that chris because um i think that the history of cosmetics really there are two branches um cosmetics were in the realm of the physicians and the pharmacists and so um, the person who made the hand creams, the soaps, would have been the local chemist or the pharmacist. Um, now, the other branch would have been um, the women or the housewives working, you know, taking care of their home. And, you know, in America, they would have had books that they called um, a book of receipts. And the receipts would be recipes, and they called them receipts instead of recipes. And you would look in there and you would find the treatment for this ailment or that ailment. Um, but what brings them both together is the ingredients that they had at hand. If you look at the old recipes for pharmaceuticals, very often, if it's wax, it has beeswax in it. They would often use honey, but not as much as beeswax. Um, the other thing that they would use is spermaceti, which um, is from whalehead, which we don't use anymore. Um, but, you know, they had a different set of ingredients that they would use. Um, olive oil, very much something you would get at the pharmacy. And so um, these recipes you would ev either find in these books of receipts, um, and these would be then things that women would usually make with um, their honey, their beeswax, different herbs and um, things from their garden or from nature, um, to make medicines for home, but remembering that the first uh, pharmaceuticals were also derived from plants. And so, for instance, uh, salicylic acid or aspirin is from um, a willow bark. So, you know, these also were very much plant-derived in the beginning of um, pharmaceutical preparations. And so there really is this kind of overlap, um, but yet very divided. Um, I think that it's interesting. I was reading an article and it, it said, um, it was a very old article, probably from the 1800s. And it said, this is the first report of using um, something. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I thought, no, actually, this is something that <laughs> the housewives have been using for a very long time so there is really there really are two branches um but i think what's happened now is that um pharmaceuticals have now and, and cosmetics are distinct um for the most part as soon as you claim that something has a health benefit it becomes a pharmaceutical product um and so if it's something um for instance if if it's something that 
is for wound healing, that would probably be more medical than cosmetic. So, um, in fact, I was going to say the the definition of what a cosmetic product is today um, in the UK and the EU. And so right now, what a cosmetic is, is any substance that's applied to the body to clean, perfume, or change appearance, correct body odor, protect or keep the body in good condition. So rather than repairing the body, now cosmetics are more about keeping the body well and, um, you know, so you don't smell and you look pretty and all that. Um, whereas before, I think really, you know, if you looked, if you wanted to find a cosmetic recipe for a cream, a cold cream, um, you know, for soaps, these would have been in pharmacopias. It would have been, um, made by your, your chemist. And so that's where you would have found these recipes as well as in the rest books of receipts, um, for home use. Thank you. Uh, and originally soap was, you know, made with, well, the lye was made with some wood ash from your, you know, hardwood fire or something. And the, um, the, the, you might have had animal fats in there if you didn't have beeswax. So going right back to sort of base principles, all of these materials or the, or the chemistry, if you like, was just, you had around your homestead. Absolutely. I have a wonderful picture that maybe I think we're going to have some links on the website. Um, and it's uh, a couple in Ohio and they're on a farmstead and the woman is in the back with a cauldron boiling up something. And the man is standing there pour, pouring water through a lye hopper. So to get the potash through, you uh-huh. know, lye from the ashes. Um, thankfully, today we have um, a bit pure chemicals we can use because I think it was a little hit or miss you would make your soap and not really knowing the concentration of anything um, could have been quite dangerous but I we Sandip and I actually um, thought we might try to make some some soap with um, lye that we made from ashes from our fire and (laughs) it really wasn't um I don't think we had enough hydroxide in it. It it really yeah. didn't, you know, it was quite... Have you ever done it, Chris? <laughs> I did it once. <laughs> uh, and it, you know, years later, it still hadn't cured. And, um, okay, yeah, that's so, where, so where I, we were, yeah. <laughs> so I ended yeah. up seasoning some bagpipes with it. That was a... a oh, well, a, okay, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's just it. It's probably, yeah. it was, it's safer that way because it just has more oil in it. But um, yeah, ours wasn't very appealing. Um, but certainly it is something that that's quite interesting, but yes, it did, it did start with that. But now today, you know, rather than, um, just having the animal fats that we have on our farmstead and the lye from our lye hopper, now we can buy so many different plant oils, um, and, and buy sodium hydroxide and quite easily make soap that actually will go hard and that you can use, (laughs) To wash your body instead of um, to season your bagpipe. That's right. <laughs> and you, you have made you have made an ancient product though. I've, I'm holding it right now. Oh, I mean, it's yes. In a, it's in a glass jar with a plastic lid on, but it's called it. You called it a serrate. That's and right. You gave me this wonderful story connected to the Leonardo da Vinci. 
That's right. I think um, I, I will tell you about that and then I'll go into another story that has to do with that because um, obviously Leonardo was first. Um, so I wrote an article for Bees for Development about, um, about serrate and let me just first, um, I'll read to you what, what the, the, def the article title was, Honey Serrate, a Pharmacological Skin Preparation Made with Beeswax, Honey and Olive Oil. Now, serrates didn't always have honey in them. Honey would be the active ingredient in the serrate. Um, an example of this is the Da Vinci recipe. Um, and so while I was researching the article, I went back looking through um, these preparations called serrate, which usually were olive oil and beeswax mixed together with then some active component. Um, back in the day, it would have been lead acetate or arsenic or mercury or something lovely like that, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that we don't use what? anymore. <laughs> for, what, for, what, for what reason? What, why would oh, you? Oh, I don't know. I think they were used, it was used for eczema, psoriasis. It was just, okay. you know, they, they used these, that's just what they had. Um, and, yeah. and so we wouldn't use those things anymore, but it's what they had at the time. Um, and I was able to trace serrates back to around the 1500s. Um, and then beyond that, going any further back, everything was in Latin. And although Jasmine was taking Latin at the school at school at the time, she wasn't any good as um, a translator for me. So that's as far back as I went. Um, and then a few years later, I found... Um, I found a translation of Leonardo da Vinci's, um, it's the notebooks of Leonardo da Vinci volume one. Um, and it was translated by, um, Jean Paul Richter. Now it was translated in the 1800s. Um, and thankfully somebody put it in English or we would, we wouldn't know about this, I guess. Um, and so what it said, it's, um, it's in his notebook. Um, it read, a remedy for scratches taught me by the herald to the king of France. Four ounces of virgin wax, four ounces of colophony, two ounces of incense. Keep each thing separate and melt the wax and then put the incense and then the colophony. Make a mixture of it and put it on the sore place. Um, what is colophony? Uh, colophony. Um, interesting enough, is the old name for resin. So this is the same resin that my daughter would use, Maggie uses on her violin. So this is tree resin. And so what do you get when you put beeswax and resin together, Chris? Beeswax and resin, you get a serrate, don't you? Well, you get propolis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you mean... <laughs> yeah, so yeah, uh, yeah, it's propolis. So it, it, in essence, this serrate is really... Um, it is an artificial propolis in a way. Okay, um, now, yeah. I, uh, so when I made this for you, um, I know what colophony is. I know what the wax is. Now, the incense, I didn't really know what that was. Um, and mm -hmm. so I did try to find out what that would have been. Um, and so I can't remember exactly what else I put in in the one I gave to you. Um, but let me smell it now. Yeah, I, I think I probably added some honey um, but unfortunately, we mm. don't know what the other ingredients are. Um, and I think you also really hit mm. upon something when you asked me, what is colophony? So when you're reading these old recipes, you're reading ingredient lists and you don't know what they are necessarily. Yeah. 
And that is well, they're old words. Then the names for the herb or the root have changed, haven't they? And, and that's right. Yeah. Well, not only that, if uh, regional differences. So, for instance, um, when people settled America, they may have called some a plant that looks similar to a plant they had at home by the same name, but it isn't the same plant. Mm -hmm. Medicinally, it wouldn't have the same qualities. Um, and so, yeah, that makes things more difficult. Yes, yes, but people did write them down at least. At least that, that's a good thing. Did you try the uh, the Da Vinci Serrate? Have you used it? I've yeah, I've you know, not, I'm not quite sure what to use it for, but I have sort of rubbed it onto my hands whenever I've got like a wound or a scratch, and yeah, it feels nice. It really the way it meets the skin is really lovely. It's different yeah. to. I mean, we make, um, what would you call them, salves, I suppose. We use, we distill some herbs and some oil, normally mm. calendula and comfrey and things like that. And then we mix that with, with beeswax. And it's like a really easy way of making some nice uh, bee medicine mixed with herbal medicine to, to put on your skin. Yes. And, and, but this is very different. It's got mm. more of a kind of polish to it, hasn't it? It's more of a... Yeah, it's it, not, it does. So yes, it's, it's it's it has a kind of sheen that kind of polishes your skin in a way that is feels more protective. And a, where, that's where, right. Where a salve will kind of disappear into your skin, this will kind of sit on the surface and give it an extra layer of protection. A bit like propolis, I suppose, as well. Well, that's right. And um, the other thing, if I if I talk more about um, about serrate as well, um, so I think we all know the term plaster. And plasters originated, um, it, was, it was a very thick, waxy, protective um, covering for a wound. And it was made with beeswax. Um, and so serrates tend to be slightly um, softer and thinner than a plaster, but they're still made with beeswax um, and with olive oil. And I think... Um, I'll tell you a little bit more about serrates, and I want to tell you a story. Um, this is the story of Thomas Marigold, and he had um, he had leprosy. Now, when I first read this article or saw this, I thought, "Oh my gosh, that's amazing! Honey cures leprosy," um, but it isn't leprosy like what we think of as leprosy. This is psoriasis. Um, and so Thomas Marigold um, presented to St. Bart's Hospital in London in 1830, and he had a very severe case of psoriasis. Um, so he was 21 years old. He had had psoriasis for 16 years, and it covered his entire body. Um, so he went into the hospital, um, and this... This case was written up in The Lancet, Volume 1, October 9th, 1830, is the first part of the story. Um, and so when he was admitted to the hospital, um, if I, I'll read this to you, I have to put my glasses on. Um, he states that the disease is of 16 years duration and appeared at first in the form of minute scales of the scalp and spots over the trunk and extremities and then the eruption has progressively increased and though occasionally is rather less in 
quantity has never for any period been entirely absent. So for 16 years, this man had psoriasis. Um, now they tried a number of treatments, um, mercury and different things. Um, he went into the hospital. It was September 25th. Um, and the first, the first, um, article in the Lancet just writes about this extreme case and there is no resolution to this or any improvement. Um, but then there is a second, a follow-up Lancet article, and this was, um, January 22nd of 1830. And what they do is they, they chronicle the progression and the treatment that they gave to Mr. Marigold. So um, on October 9th, it was still covering his whole entire body. Um, they tried giving him different kinds of baths and things like that, but nothing provided any relief from this horrible case of psoriasis. In fact, very often it would increase after a treatment. Um, then finally, on November 3rd, 1830, so this is a number of months since he was admitted to the hospital, they, had they were using a traditional, at the time, lotion on his whole body, but on his left arm, um, they dressed with the following. Um, and I'll, I won't say it in Latin, I'll say it in English. Honey, olive oil, and wax. Okay, now what is that? This is honey serrate. And so they follow this, and they note that on the 10th, one week later that the arm is significantly improved. Um, now, the rest of his body hasn't had the serrate treatment, so is still, um, is still covered in psoriasis. But um, it, it, it is much, much more improved. Um, and then they decide they will treat the whole body with this honey serrate. And on January 8th, um, they released... Thomas Marigold from the hospital and the end of the article, it says the skin over the whole body has resumed its natural appearance and has not the slightest vestige of lepra. Um, he is as well as he has ever been in his life. So 16 years of having psoriasis and he is cured by honey serrate. Um, and I think for me, this is just such a wonderful story showing the healing power of honey. And I think what's really important is to remember, this is 1830 in London. They are using local honey. They are not using Manuka honey. They are not getting it from New Zealand. This is something that you can see, this, um, this improvement with any honey, um, which I think is really, really important. Um, and to follow up on that, in the article that I wrote for Bees for Development about honey serrate, um, I have a citation for a study that was done in 2003 in the Middle East by Al-Wali. And this is interesting because it demonstrates that um, it's using the same ingredients, honey, beeswax, and um olive oil, that this topical application speeds wound healing of psoriasis. Um, and so this is topical application of natural honey, beeswax, and olive oil mixture for atomic, atopic dermatitis or psoriasis. 
And so what's really interesting about this is that they used honey that would have been honey they had to hand. They didn't mention using Medi honey or using Manuka honey. Um, and so this, because they do not specify, I imagine this is honey from the Middle East. And this really demonstrates that any honey can be used to make a serrate and that it will help speed wound healing. Um, and I have another story um, or a few anecdotal stories that I could tell you about using serrate and what we've done at home. Um, we used to use serrate on Maggie Jane's nappy rash, and it was remarkable because it would completely clear within a few hours. Um, and I should say that my husband is a professor at University College London, and I am a PhD scientist. And if you would have told me the stories um, about serrate, I would have said, there's no way, I don't believe you, um, because they really do sound made up. Um, but we've seen it with our own eyes. Um, another example is um, I was at a place called Asington Mill giving a workshop and Maggie Jane came along with me and I don't remember how old she was, but she was out in the countryside and she got into some stinging nettle and she had blisters on her arm. And I thought, well, let's put some serrate on this. And so I put the honey serrate on that night and in the morning we couldn't see where the blisters were at all. In fact, we couldn't remember which arm had the nettle stings. Um, and it was completely remarkable. Um, and there are a number of stories like this. Um, a woman that I knew, a beekeeper at one of my workshops, had a small holding and she had this cow that gave birth to a very large calf and Bessie had a very sore bottom. And so she put honey serrate on Bessie's bottom and Bessie was much better. So um, I think there are also um, probably veterinary uses for for honey as well. Um, and I do have some old veterinary textbooks. Very often they're in with the, um, the human recipes as well. And they do also use beeswax and honey. Yeah, I mean, our dog actually was uh, cut himself really badly with sliced, you know, big slice down, down his breastbones on an area. And uh, it was a big gash and we took him to the vet and they basically did give us a pot of honey. Oh, really? Wonderful. Pot of honey to Wonderful. Take away. Um, yeah. And I think some people, are so, some people, you know, in the, in the medical profession and the veterinary profession, some people are obviously outward thinking like this and, other, and others yeah. aren't. But, uh, I think um, one of the advantages to the serrate preparation is that if you've ever put honey on your skin, the, the warmth from our body makes it quite liquidy and it will kind of run off. And so the advantage to having the beeswax and the olive oil is now you have um, kind of a paste that you can then apply and, it's, and it stays put. And so you could put some on um, a bandage and then put it on the wound. And, um, and that, that is probably the advantage to having it in a mixture like serrate. Um, but serrate also, it's great as, as a lip balm or on dry skin, um, you know, so that's also, honey is also useful for that. Um, I just wanted to describe the serrate recipe that I have in the Bees for Development article. And this is in, um, in a 2016 issue. 
So the proportions um, are 20% beeswax, 40% olive oil, and 40% honey. Now, I think we all know that honey and beeswax don't mix. That's why they, um, the honeycomb works as it does. And so you mechanically have to force these um, to mix together when you make the serrate. Um, and so you would melt the beeswax in the olive oil and then add your honey and you stir and stir and stir until your arm is sore and until it's cooled enough that you have kind of, it's like an emulsion um, of the honey. And the other thing I should mention is that 40% of honey, I think is kind of a magic percentage because I think at 40%, um, honey is antibacterial. Um, and so I think if you go below that, and I'm not, I'm not sure if that's exactly the right percent percentage, but, um, I, th I think that that's where it is that, that you need 40% honey to have an antibacterial, um, effect in a mixture. Yeah. So this is in the Beast for Development Journal, number 118. It's March 2016, um, and it is a simple recipe. I think the most difficult thing is that you can't set it down and leave it because if you let the beeswax um, solidify and you don't force the honey to mix with it, you won't have the serrate. So the most difficult part of this recipe is really stirring it until it's cool. So if you have a friend that you can... Uh, take turns stirring, um, that's always good. But it is a very simple recipe and three ingredients that are really easy to come by. Um, and again, you don't need to use any special honey. Um, it's great if you're a beekeeper, you have your own honey. But if you're not a beekeeper, you can go to the supermarket or go see one of a local beekeeper and get some honey. And any honey will work in this preparation. Yeah, so any community all over the world basically is accessible to absolutely, you know, absolutely, um, and that's that's the you know one of the things um, with bees for development is that the the articles that they publish and the recipes that I write for them are designed to be used all over the world. Um, I have a recipe coming out in the June issue of the Bees for Development Journal and. Um, I've called it the Rob recipe and what it is is a soap recipe that's very very flexible so that people who live in remote areas can choose different oils and still make the same soap recipe without reformulating it and have a safe soap. So if you live in Tanzania and you have corn oil available um, you can still make the soap whereas if you live um, you know, in the Caribbean and you're, you predominantly have, let's say, soy oil or whatever it might be, you can use the same recipe to make a soap and you won't have to reformulate it. Um, and so I think that's, you know, the types of things that I write for them are recipes that can be used anywhere. I've, obviously, we can make them here as well. Um, yeah, and I was going to ask, how do... So people come to your workshops and they... Uh, find out how to make a soap or, or or such. But I mean, if if people would like to get into this uh, area themselves, uh, <laughs> you've mentioned dangers, and that, I suppose that worries that worries people that they're going to sort of blow themselves up or, or 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 make the wrong mixture or whatever. I mean, how 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 can people just get started on? I think I think first of all, um, most recipes, 
you know, that you're making for yourself, you won't hurt yourself. Um, soap is a very unique cosmetic because it's a chemical synthesis. Um, there's no way to make soap without using hydroxide. And so if you are starting out, it's good if you have a recipe that someone has formulated for you and you need to follow all the safety instructions and, and precautions. Um, but some things are super easy. So it's very easy to make things like a lip balm, even easier than making a serrate. Serrate is a little tricky, but a lip balm, if you have some cocoa butter, beeswax, and an oil, you can mix those together. It's simply a mixture, pour it into container and you have it. Um, and so there are various, various levels of difficulty. Um, when I run my workshops, I write the recipes so that people will be successful. I think if you come to a workshop, you want to be able to go home. You want to be able to make the product and have it work. And you also want to be able to have access to the ingredients. So most of the ingredients that I use are not specialist ingredients. There are some that are specialist, um, depending on what you're making. If you start talking about creams and things, but you can very easily, um, you know, go shopping locally and get the ingredients to make soap. Um, and I think that that's, that's what's important. Um, so I like for people to have recipes that are, that are easy to use, that they will be successful making the first time they try. Um, I often go and speak to bee clubs. And I remember once, I think I went to Romford and there was a girl in the audience, 16 year old, um, daughter of a beekeeper and she wrote down the recipe for soap and she went home and she made soap and I think you know that's really the goal instead of it being something that is really difficult um, and obviously you know she had to um, take the precautions to, when she was working with her hydroxide but um, it isn't difficult to do um, if you follow my re my methods and my recipes have your children taken a, an interest? Uh, yes, actually, um, it, it's funny. Jasmine, Jasmine was very, very much a help um, making things. And then when she went to secondary school, she lost interest a little bit, I would say. Um, and then now has come back to it and, you know, likes to give her friends soap um, and creams and things whenever there's a birthday. And then Maggie really enjoys um, still working with me. Um, in fact, um, I recently um, released the first book in a series of booklets that um, on making and selling cosmetics. And Maggie is pretty much um, my guinea pig. I had to acknowledge her for allowing me to slather her um, with cleansing cream. And so she's quite a good sport. Um, and, and, but yes, they're quite interested in that and it's quite fun to do. Um, and yeah. <laughs> You've probably got the healthiest kids on the block, I would say. Well, <laughs> yeah, maybe the cleanest. The cleanest. Yeah. <laughs> I was on your website earlier this morning and saw a picture of a, of a rabbit called Lenny. Can you tell us anything about Lenny? Yes, so Lenny is, um, he is a mini lop rabbit. He's white and he has baby blue eyes, probably the most beautiful little bunny's eyes I've ever seen. Um, we adopted Lenny about four years ago. And um, I think it's been now over two years ago, 
Lenny got very, very ill. Um, he picked up um, this parasite called E. caniculi. And this is, it sounds, it sounds science fiction-y. This is literally a brain-eating parasite. It goes in through the spinal cord and it um, consumes the nerve cells and it gets in the brain. And the rabbits typically present with a head tilt. Um, it's very serious. Lenny didn't have a head tilt, but Lenny became, he was completely paralyzed. Um, so we took him to our vet and we had this wonderful vet um, who had just graduated from the Royal Veterinary College. And he really thought outside the box and he looked at Lenny and he thought, you know, this looks like a caniculi, even though it isn't, he isn't presenting like that. And so gave him medicine and he recovered quite significantly, much, much more than they really thought that he would. But Lenny was still quite weak. Um, his hind legs were weak and he often had urine scald um, because he couldn't lift his bottom properly. And I read an article um, about giving pollen to rabbits um, and that increasing their and uh, boosting their immune system. And so now it's been about a month. Um, a month ago, I started giving Lenny pollen in his breakfast and the difference is really, truly remarkable. He has so much more mobility now. Um, he has no urine scald whatsoever. And I, again, this is another example of a bee product working, you know, as a, as a medicine. And it really is truly remarkable. He is so well now. Um, yeah. That's, that's great. Pollen is a is immunomodulatory, isn't it? So if your immune system needs to be more active, it will bring it up. But if it's too active, it will also bring it down. Oh, right. It's, okay. It's, just, it's like everything that comes out of a beehive is good for you. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and it's great to hear those stories and, and all of your your anecdotes. And it's um really good to hear that, that wonderful, just practical advice that everybody can do at home. Yes, that's right. And thank, thank you, thank you, Sarah. You're a star. You're brilliant. Oh, thank and, you, Chris. <laughs> and uh, we love you. You, you, and you, you run workshops at uh, at the Honey Show and at the at the Spring Convention. You work with Bees for Development. You've written books. You write articles. You you visit bee clubs and lecture to beekeepers. So so you're in your own um, sort of humble way. You're spreading these wonderful uh, bee medicinal. Um, life-preserving, healing, kind of touch all around wherever you, wherever you go. That's great. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. That was really lovely talking to, to Sarah there. Um, what an amazing list of achievements and just mm. quite exhausting, really. But Just such a life story. I would love to hear a story about the, her home being blown away by a, a tornado as well. <laughs> No, but I mean, <laughs> I'd love to meet her parrot. He sounds great, doesn't he? Oh, parrot yeah. sounds great. The rabbit sounds great. Yeah, it's really good. It's just a, she's obviously got a really, um, a, a really colourful life. Yeah, and she's such an enabler, isn't she? She is one of those people you just do want to just go and try and make soap. I think I'm just going to look at her website and see if I can nail that. But I was thinking, I mean, mm. so you know, okay, honey, we can get olive oil, we can get wax. I mean, is that an easy thing to come by? Oh yeah! Oh yes! Yeah. I mean, obviously for you beekeepers, but oh, for obviously, uh, well, like everything, you can go to the 
online shop and type it in and get some wax. That's what happens most of the time. Or if you know a beekeeper. Yeah. But I think most most beekeepers, when people ask me, oh, have you got any wax? I mean, we use it all. Do you? And, and, uh, yeah, and beekeepers like to trade it in sometimes. If they use foundation, they might trade it back for for some wax that's been pressed into into the hexagonal print to put in a beehive. So does it have value, wax? I mean, is it is it quite expensive stuff? I mean, or is it just a byproduct? And um... I think if you're going to make a lot of products, it will kind of become expensive. It depends on the demand, doesn't it? But I, I, there's different grades of wax because you get the wax that is made from the honeycomb, um, which is, tends to be a purer, whiter wax. And then there's the, the wax that the, is a browner wax that they... Queen, the queen's laid eggs in which is tends to have no well it tends to have no value really does it i mean it, it okay, depends, so yeah. on the quali- depends on the quality, yeah. quality there, of the wax. there's an interesting point there is that uh, everybody loves a nice pristine uh, golden yellow beeswax candle but years ago uh, you know in a, like a medieval market you would see you know the, the most kenning oldest women rooting around for the darkest candles knowing that they would last the longest Oh, really? That's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I really liked about Sarah's, um, the, the points that were raised, was this thing about cosmetics. Now, I mean, I'm somebody that just shies from the cosmetics industry. I hate it. It's all about ego and mm-hmm, vanity mm-hmm, and everything. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I just don't use anything, probably to the detriment of my skin, I'm now realising, because this idea that, <laughs> you know, it's actually a protective, it's a protection. I mean, it's a natural protection to use things like the sort of things yeah. that Sarah's mm-hmm. making and you're obviously you're making as well, Chris. Yeah, isn't there, isn't there a famous quote? I, I can't remember. I think it's the Bible or the Quran or something. That's a, you know, like honey in your belly and oil on your skin equals a long life or something like that. Okay. I mean, these products from the hive are also, as you said, Chris, in the interview, also healthy. Uh, that to use a product, a cosmetic product that's made from those from those hive products must be well must be healthy yeah it just must be but you don't use cosmetics do you? you're probably even you know you've got another layer being a m- man you know but would you use those bee products well you should be using those bee products i'd rather use them yeah uh the, i don't really i don't really understand the kind of the, i mean we talked a bit about the boundary between sort of pharmaceuticals and cosmetics and, and also you i i kind of trust mm. something i trust something more that that I know what's in it, you know, and it seems to me these products are products from the hive, are, you know, simple. Uh, and if they're from your own hive, Patrick, you know, if exactly, if, yeah. uh, if you've insourced your food and medicine and, you know, to a certain extent, cosmetics, then you can really trust them, can't you? And, you know, they haven't been tested on animals or, or mm. cut with other substances and mm. that kind of stuff. So there's something about having a hive in the garden that... If if you have a garden and you know your neighbours are not allergic or something, you know they, you can have a hive there and you can have that the nourishment and the medicine from the hive, mm. and in in source those things, which which is I think a great a great thing, a good thing. And is it is it? <laughs> making that connection, isn't it, between cosmetics and med- medicine? You know that that to me, yeah, the, the the, I've never connected strange, those two things now. before, but it is that medicinal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a, cos- a cosmetic balm or salve, as, we, as you were calling them. You know, it, that is a medicine for the body. Yeah, well, we can call it medicine. We can use it as medicine, but we can't sell it as medicine. That's mm. the that's the kind of tricky, crunchy point, isn't it? That uh, you know, even herbal medicine today, I think, is being by the you know the medical profession and the and the 
Yeah, it's a, it's a big moot point, isn't it? Uh, Absolutely, and... and it's just bonkers, isn't it, if you start tig- mm-hmm. digging away at that, because that's just all about commoditization and money-making, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. Certainly is, I'm sure it is, yeah. And, uh, but for thousands and thousands of years, you know, it has been medicine, and we know it, And uh, but we just can't label it as that. So that's why I'd encourage someone, you know, to... to uh, not you know to find a beekeeper that you can get to know and trust and and see what they could supply you with or even better become the beekeeper mm. anyway that was really wonderful and we've um we've we've no more time now but please visit our website www.livingbeing.com and sarah's of course and sarah's sign up to one of her workshops go to the honey show uh, the national honey show that sounds great yeah, yeah, yeah. it's amazing at sandown park you don't have to be a beekeeper is there going to be one this year do we know i'm not sure yet we hope so haven't heard any anything either what way time yet. of year does it generally happen in it happens around Samhain, around halloween okay. at the the last weekend in october normally so there's a bit of time. Let's hope so. Let's all go. Yeah, yeah, I'd hope so. And, and you know, there are no horse races happening <laughs> <laughs> at that weekend, if, if that might put you off. And, and uh, well, it might be, a, might be a draw for you, but, but uh, <laughs> I think what it means, actually, what it means is, is the toilets are, are great because they've got this kind of, uh, you know, this capacity for toilets for thousands and thousands of people all rushing in and rushing out at the, at the exact same time. <laughs> so you can always find a toilet. Whenever you need a toilet, there's always somewhere to pee. <laughs> I think it'd be fairly chaotic if you had uh, horses and, and honey at the same time. <laughs> horses and bees. There's horses famously bees. don't get don't get on, do they? It's a, it's a that's right. honey. <laughs> but I did meet an Iranian beekeeper whose father once once kept be, kept bees in the stable and 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 a very in a very skillful way and very practical way. We'll talk about that another time. Okay, oh, yeah. good, good, good. Yeah. Get, um, get him on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think we should go now. Thanks for listening, everybody, and join us again for another episode of Living Being.